The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. The Celebrant Foundation and Institute, the preeminent school for ceremony and ritual careers, teaching people to become professional life cycle celebrants via its international online programs, proudly supports spirituality and health and essential conversations with Rabbi Rami. Sign up now for a Celebrant Open House webinar. To learn more, go to celebrantinstitute.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is a special edition of Essential Conversations. Last October, I attended the Parliament of World Religions in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Parliament, a modern version of the original gathering of religious leaders from around the world that took place in Chicago, Illinois in 1893, is the gathering place for the global interfaith movement. The Salt Lake City Parliament was attended by 10,000 people and featured hundreds of lectures, seminars, and cultural events. I attended the Parliament as a journalist for Spirituality and Health magazine, interviewing dozens of presenters, representatives of a wide variety of religions, some known by many and some known only to a few. As you'll notice from the background noise, these interviews were conducted in the thick of things. Well, in fact, there was no thin of things at the Parliament. Multiple events were happening at the same time in the huge convention center venue, and despite our best efforts, finding a quiet place to talk was nearly impossible. So allow the ambient sounds to be part of the experience. Indeed, those bystanders who huddled around us as we spoke heard what you're about to hear, background noise and all. Our interviews were conducted amid the hubbub of spiritual seekers conversing with Buddhist and Catholic priests, Buddhist and Protestant ministers, rabbis, swamis, yogis, gurus, imams, sheikhs, laypeople, academics, and fellow seekers of all stripes. After a while, the sounds of spiritual seeking created a wonderful and comforting environment. There's something promising and hopeful about being surrounded by people for whom spirituality and religion are seen not as weapons of contention and war, but as vehicles of cooperation and peace. In fact, if there's one thing the Parliament offered, it was hope. We plan to share some of that hope with you in these special editions of Essential Conversations. Uh, I'm Reverend Will McGarvey. I'm halftime pastor at Community Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, California, and I'm the executive director of the Interfaith Council of Contra Costa County, and it was my honor to moderate a conversation with three very distinguished fellows today. Ijaz Nakfi uh, is the Amazon best-selling author of the book, The Quran, With or Against the Bible. He's a past president of his Islamic Center in Pleasanton, California, and serves on the governing board of Interfaith Council of Contra Costa County. We have Keith Burton, who heads the Center for Adventist Muslim Relations at Oakwood University, where he also teaches in the School of Religion and in the Interfaith Action Program at Claremont Lincoln University, where I also get to teach um, alongside him in uh, some of the other online courses. And we have Dr. Daryl Ezel, who is the Director of the Masters of Arts in Interfaith Action Program at Claremont Lincoln University. He has extensive experience as a researcher and practitioner, many degrees, many different uh, interfaith hats in New York, 
in Chicago and multiple other places now in Claremont, California. You raised so many interesting issues in this exploration of, of rhetoric and violence and, and all that. I just want to pick on a couple of things. Uh, pick on meaning not argue with you, but just focus. You know, focus on a couple of things. The first one is there was sort of a, a sense that religion is okay. It's what we do with it that can go wrong. And when we talked about the Quran, we focused on the, the peaceful parts of the Quran. I mean, there was a recognition that there's some other material there, but we, we focused on the peaceful stuff. With the, the Hebrew Bible, the same thing. We mentioned the negative, but we focused on the positive. That's with the New Testament. My question is, when we say something like ISIS has captured or kidnapped Islam and it's not really Islam, on what basis do we say that? When we say that uh, the settler movement in Israel, which is messianically driven, is not really Judaism, on, on what basis can we say that? Or Christian identity skinheads in Idaho that claim for themselves a white version of Christianity. Exactly. So on what basis do we say that's not Christianity, that's not Islam, that's not Judaism, when these people are, in many cases, very well educated in their traditions, not necessarily skinheads, but some of the, the rabbis and, and imams who are in this, these other movements. How do we say they're not authentically Muslim or Jewish? Or What's the criteria that we can say this is really Islam? and yeah. that's not, or this is really Judaism and that's not. Yeah, I think that's a challenging question really because for me to say that something isn't means that there's something that is, exactly. but who, who defines what is? That's what I'm asking. You know, and uh, that's the challenge. I believe that when those of us look at certain activities like the so-called ISIS, when we look at the Zionist extremists in Israel, you know, and uh, even some of the Christian extremists who were, who were doing certain things in Eritrea, for instance, um, we're looking at texts, really, and I think the text in form. And uh, Ejaz's presentation today, we went straight to the text, to those parts of the text that talk about peace. And as you rightly said, there are parts in the same text that are violent. But that's the reason why um, one of the things I raised was about texts that are prescriptive and descriptive. And so I think when you look at the essence of um, most religions, there is this notion of peace. There is this notion of, okay, you are who you are, others are who they are, uh, but just because they don't share your revelation doesn't necessarily make them bad in a sense. And so carrying this message and allowing it to be that which identifies the faithful in religion uh, puts one in a position where they can say, okay, that person is not really rep represented. Now, of course, ISIS will say the same thing. Right. <laughs> you know, ISIS will, will, will say the same thing. But I do believe that the chorus of voices, the chorus of voices from a democratic perspective, um, does try and kind of lend to a consensus that, okay, this is how the religion is supposed to be, at least at its core. So, so going, going back to ISIS, not just ISIS, but also many other um, extremists, it, you ask them, define or, or describe where you see this in the scripture. Now, there was a French captive, by the way, who went back, I think he was uh, a captive for several weeks. And when he returned, he said, I've never seen any of my captors, talking about ISIS, uh, read the Quran or even carry a copy of the Quran. And so uh, when they say that they are following the, the scriptures, uh, their practice and their daily lifestyle really says something totally opposite. When the, the Quran says you know, taking the, the life of an innocent person, it is as if you kill the entire humanity. And so if you're killing an innocent person like a journalist, Gail, 20 years old, 22 years old, 
who they captured and tortured and, and murdered. You know, how do you defend that? How do you 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 court because they're the, not innocent. The, Right. That's, well, that's their defense. But what was there are her? No innocent people left. Well, but then I mean, that's either... crushing the truth, right? No, it's their truth. I mean, that seems to me to be the difficult thing. But they are treating different people differently at different times. So they're treating Assyrian Christians like people of the book, but they're treating Yazidis as devil worshippers, and they're um, able to enslave and have um, sex slaves that are Yazidis. But the Assyrian Christian women are married into uh, their polygamous families because Whether they're they people of the book. Or they're still the enslaving, yeah. but they're not chattel slavery versus home slavery. Right. Which is because sort of, a, of the a religious definition. And, and slavery is slavery, and you're going to tell me that exactly. some that's, slavery is kosher and other slavery is not? I mean, that's the absurdity to which they've gone. Well, what Keith was saying, you threw out the word democratic. And I think that's key. But that has nothing to do, this is obviously jumping in here as a participant, which I shouldn't do. <laughs> that's okay. But it has nothing to do with these religions. And I, I mean all of them. Judaism isn't democratic. Jews became democratic when someone invented democracy in the 1700s. But the test of Judaism is tzedek, tzedek, right? It's justice. Yeah, but the def definition of justice was not democratic. I mean, if you look at the way Jews traditionally would treat women, it's not what we would call just today. Uh, and if you look at the more orthodox, you know, the Haredi, the very, the, what we might call extremists, though, so I'm not sure I like those labels. I mean, the way they treat women, I, as a, as a liberal, democratic, largely secular uh, Jew, would say, oh, that's horrendous. That's horrendous. Because you've expanded the law of justice to include more people Which, than the ancient scriptures have. Ex exactly. And that, that seems to be what, what we were talking about a little bit, that we have to expand beyond what the scriptures... It's almost like, I don't care what the scriptures say anymore. I mean, this whole thing with settlers, they don't, they don't have to quote scripture other than to say, God gave us this land. And when the Amalekites were there, we moved them out. We killed them. Every man, woman, child, and cow, the way you said it. That's because God gave it to us. Now, I don't believe in that God. I don't believe God dabbles in real estate. I don't believe God does any of those things. But that's the mindset. But that's a Jewish mindset. I can't say you're not Jewish. You I know, just think you're crazy. You know, in 1776, members of the Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they're endowed by their creator with certain rights, and among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, many people look at that as being the bedrock of America. We all know that was based on hypocrisy. Because when they made that statement, we have the Navajo and the Sioux and the Apache wishing that they would leave. We, 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 you know, we have, we, we, we have sure. Af African slavery. You know, and and as, as we look throughout American history, you know, there has never been a moment when that statement has been true. Yet, because of that statement, we have in 1863 Abraham Lincoln um, signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Because of that statement, we have Susan B. Anthony, you know, at the Women's Conference in, at, 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 at Senator Falls saying, hey, you know, we, we have rights too. Uh, because of that statement, uh, we have Sojourner Truth at that same Women's Conference asking the question, ain't I a woman too? Because, you know, and so when, when, when I look at the um, scriptures, you know, 
and you see the command to love. You know, the Shema Shema Yisrael, Narech Narech, you know, and you know, shall love the Lord, you love your heart, you know, the other text, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, you, there, are, there, there are things that you can mine from Scripture, which I believe are the essence of Scripture. The social justice prophets, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-lowing stream. Micah, what does the Lord require of you but to love justice, mercy, walk humbly with them? You know, and even though we can look at the same text, and see that there are many deviations from the ideal. When I look at the text, when I look at the Bible, when I look at the Quran, I'm looking to see, okay, okay, is there a similarity in the revelation of a God who is calling people to togetherness? When I look at the Buddhist scriptures, when I look at the Hindu scriptures, I'm looking for the same thing. Where's that similarity? Could it go back to a God who did reveal? A God who did say, this is how humans should live together. I think also, uh, with respect to Keith's point, your question, uh, Rami, we're looking at universal truths. Everybody's right. <laughs> Everybody thinks that they're right. They believe that they're right. But the, the way that we approach this with regards to the earlier point around religion is that I look at it on the basis of common sense. Now, your faith, Judaism, speaks on peace. Islam speaks on peace. Buddhism speaks on peace. Christianity speaks on peace. Many other faiths and traditions speak on peace. When one invokes certain acts in the global public sphere that cut against that, in a sense, the golden rule, you know, of that particular faith, right? Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Their activities are not in line or in congruence with the essential truth that's laid out in the sacred writings. That's simple. That's totally simple. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, that person who is practicing the extreme form of that religion considers their acts to be truthful. So my interpretation, that in person's interpretation, that person's actions, and my action to embrace peace are all considered universal truths. And the hard part here is understanding how to communicate along the lines of universal truth. So when uh, the Bush administration looks to, or rather looked to, Afghanistan, right, it's thinking and pondering around the work of the Taliban, uh, the same when looking to Iraq and looking at uh, Saddam Hussein, Washington saw itself as right and correct. The State Department saw itself as right and correct. However, in Afghanistan, in Kabul, the Taliban saw itself as right and correct. So the creation of foreign policy, especially U.S. foreign policy, in this sense, you know, considered itself to be right. The Taliban considered itself to be right. So now we're thinking, how in the world are we supposed to engage with one another? When you have two forces that are practicing universal truths, and it is difficult to reach the table, <laughs> the policy-making table, uh, the diplomatic arena, uh, a place of arbitration, so that we can ensure that peace prevails. 
So, so going back to the scriptures, I, I think one of the mis- common mistakes is to, to take the, the scriptures literally and also take one passage or one verse separately. So I'll give an example. So, you know, uh, the, the Old Testament says, uh, the law says that, you know, any man who has committed adultery uh, should be uh, put, put to death by stoning, right? And then someone asked Jesus about that. He said, when I'll say that any man who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. So now you put the two and two together. It means anyone, any man who has looked at a woman with lust should be stoned to death. But then no. Jesus tries to cover that with, like, he who is without sin. Exactly. So, if, if, so again, if you want to misinterpret that and use this, then I'll tell you, we will run out of stones. <laughs> and, and, and so... So is that just that? And, and the same with the Quran. So you, I know verse number six from chapter nine has been like, find them wherever you find them and kill them wherever. But then you look at nine, one, two, three, and four, it lays the foundation and then nine, six. It also says anyone who actually stops fighting, you must stop fighting, right? So nobody talks about 906. Everybody talks about 905. So it's also how you want to use or misuse uh, going back to, again, the ISIS, since this is still a hot issue, first of all, I think we need to use a U in front of ISIS, U for an Islamic state. So it's, we keep thinking that they're actually are just, quote-unquote, just only religious and they want to create a religious empire. But we are forgetting, again, the political issues, the social issues and economical issues and whatnot. The, the question is, who is funding them? And then, so so there was one Saudi citizen, one single citizen, who actually had about, this is two years ago or so, when Saudi Arabia was not at war officially with ISIS. And because a lot of the elements did come from them. And then one Saudi royal family member contributed $28 million to ISIS. So when we wonder where all these the, the, the arms are coming from, they just cannot in isolation just come up and say, well, we are going to create an Islamic state here. And so the enablers are the ones who may or may not have anything to do with the religion. It's more about, you know, they're trying to find more power, that you're going to have your own sure. statesmen, and then so, so it's, it's not as simple as somebody who's saying, I want to create a, a religiously righteous state. So I, I, know, I know you want to jump in on that. <laughs> I guess watching the, I, well, I guess watching the time slot they've given us to, to fit this in. But So we have a couple minutes left. So um, I, mean, I, I really welcome what you're saying. When you talk about, let's not take it literally, let's take it metaphorically, when we bring in democracy, even as an ideal that we're working toward and we look at uh, women's suffrage and women's equality and say, well, that's... Or gay and lesbian and transgender equality. Right, which you've never... Those are all post-modern, you know, maybe you can trace some of that stuff back to the European Enlightenment or something. But those are post-modern ideas that you will not find in Iron Age or, or Middle e- Medieval Scripture. I mean, you get a little in the tomb tomb, but that's about it. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, yeah. it's really, so what I hear you calling for is a real revolution in, in a couple of ways. And then I'm going to open up and you can tell me what you think of this. So we, we are taking these ideals that, that you listed and saying, this is, these are the core universal truths, the golden rule. Kind of thing. And then we're saying, we're going to use that to do all the interpretation of our texts and our traditions. That is, it seems to me, that is a uniquely interfaith position to take in the sense of creating something new. So then there's just a Muslim way to do the golden rule and a Jewish way to do the golden rule, a Christian, a secular, whatever, way to do the golden rule. But what brings us together is we share the same principles. 
and can call each other on those principles. Wait, we're, this is what we're holding sacred, uh, including women's empowerment and all of that. And, and then, but certain aspects of Judaism, they don't have that. Certain, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they don't have that. Or the question of our tribalism, and that gets right down to the basic humanity that we have between each other. Knowing that tribalism in the past has served us well to be able to evolve into the conscious beings that we are, but over the last six million years, as we become more conscious, we've also kept that tribalism. And with the planet full of seven billion people, it's not serving us anymore. So let's end, let's go with that. So how do we get rid of? I mean, how, it's how, how do how do we address that? And how do, and consciously do it? Yeah, and yeah. let it go consciously. Yeah, it's not going to. We don't have time to let it go through evolution, and we get exactly to, to the Star Trek. Universe. You know, I personally don't think tribes are going anywhere. I mean, in a real sense, as human beings, and I mentioned earlier, fear and insecurity um, provokes us to really, um, really want to create and, and hone these tribes, but they're not going anywhere. I think what we have to learn is intertribal engagement. And uh, that being the fact, because I, I wrestle with the fact that, you know, as, 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 as America shifts and the tectonic plate shift and we move into this minority-majority phase in this country, a lot of folks are retreating from the public sphere. Now, they're acting out and misbehaving in the public sphere, but as soon as they do that, they retreat back to their pockets. And when we retreat to the pockets, we don't speak to one another. So what we really need is a prescription on how to engage across these tribal and cultural lines. And I believe that should be uh, our focus moving forward. Because in a real sense, uh, we as human beings feel comfortable being around like-minded folk. Right. Even if, and I'm gonna, we're going to have to end, we're going to run out of time. But, but even here at, this, at a parliament, we are like-minded. I forgot which one of you, maybe more, said that. We're sort of preaching to the choir. We are like-minded, but we, at the same time, as, as Daryl said, we're different tribes. Mm -hmm. So we've got a, there's a greater tribe that we've subsumed all these smaller tribes into, and that maybe is the emerging thing that'll, that'll keep us from slaughtering each other. Yeah. Right, and our, our differences don't necessarily have to be walls of separation. They could be doors of invitation. But, yeah. And, and even, even within, you know, groups, like, for instance, I'm, I was born in, in London, and I'm from South London, and South London and North North London is don't don't get on, <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? My parents are from Jamaica, you know, and uh, Jamaica was a part of the West Indies Federation back in the day when they were supposed to pull together and be this mighty force, etc. But after a while, it disintegrated because Jamaicans and Trinidadians and Guyanese and you know, and so and so it's 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 just a matter of fact that there is going to be division. We're going to proclive towards people who. You know, we may all like the same soccer team or something. Yeah. You know, is that so? So how do, how do we recognize that and still celebrate the fact that we are different? And so we're going to end with that question. That's the challenge. You've been listening to a special edition of Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami, drawing from interviews that I did at the Parliament of World Religions last October. Support for Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami comes from the Celebrant Foundation and Institute the international online professional training program for life cycle celebrants. Sign up now for a Celebrant Open House webinar. And to learn more, go to celebrantinstitute.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. 
and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Central Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.